We're in the book of Romans. We ended last week by looking at Paul's life. We looked at Paul's life leading up to the first missionary journey. And Paul, he goes down to Jerusalem. He gets his training under, who is Paul trained under? Anybody remember? Gamaliel. Gamaliel. After he finishes his training, he goes where? He's, he's in Jerusalem, and then he goes where? He goes to Tarsus, remember? He goes back home to Tarsus, which is why he doesn't meet Jesus, because he's in Tarsus, probably running a synagogue. He hears about this little upstart religion, and he decides to go back to Jerusalem to stamp out this religion. He goes to Jerusalem, he gets letters for the synagogues in Damascus, giving him permission to go and kill Christians. And on his way to Damascus, he has a come-to-Jesus meeting, and he realizes this is a big mistake. In Damascus, he starts preaching Christ, and the Jews all get converted and become Christians. No? Do, do I have that wrong? What'd they do? They tried to kill him. So, I'm just making sure you guys are awake. You know, it's early in the morning, it's kind of cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he leaves Damascus and he goes where? Arabia. He goes into the wilderness and he gets his training in Arabia from Jesus. He comes back from Arabia and then where does he go? To Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem to meet who? To meet the apostles. But the apostles are a little wary of him because he's been killing people. So he has a friend who helps him out. Who's his friend? Barnabas. And Barnabas goes and introduces him to the apostles. He spends 15 days with Peter. And then he leaves. They send him away. And they send him up to... They send him, I think they send him back to Tarsus, if I remember correctly. And he's gone for a while. And then his friend Barnabas comes to find him. Why does Barnabas come to find Paul? Anybody remember? He needs, help. he needs help. Where is Barnabas at? He's got a ministry going in a city called the first place people were called Christians. Antioch. Antioch. And he goes to Antioch. He spends a year in Antioch. And in Antioch, what happens there? Something important happens. Acts 13. He is commissioned to do something. This is the ending of our last class. Okay, he's commissioned, he's called to go to the Gentiles, and he starts his first missionary journey in Acts 13. All right, see, you guys do remember this stuff. Okay. I, I made this map this week. By made, of course, I mean I downloaded it from Logos. Um, this is his first missionary journey. Um, we'll talk about the green line in a minute. Here's Antioch of Syria. He leaves Antioch. This is Acts 13, 1 through 3. By the way, on the back of your handout, if you would like to know, there's a basic outline of his three missionary journeys. So I'm not just going to point at the map. You guys have biblical references if you would like to go study out those. So Acts 13, he, he leaves Antioch. He goes down to Cyprus. He goes to Paphos. He plants churches there. He goes up to Perga. Antioch of Pisidia up here. Iconium. Derby. He gets to Derby. He turns around and he goes right back through the churches he just planted. Why does he go back to the same places? To strengthen them, right? 
He turns around, he goes back to Iconium, back to Antioch. This time he comes down to Adalia and then returns back to Antioch of Syria. That's his first missionary journey. You'll find that in Acts 13 through Acts 14. His second missionary journey is a little bit more expansive. Um, by a little bit, I mean a lot. That's a long way to walk or a long way to ride a camel. This time he starts down here in Jerusalem. And he works his way up to Damascus through Syria. He gets back to Antioch, goes to Issus, Tarsus, Derby. Lystra, Iconium, some of these names sound familiar already. And he works his way. There's Nicaea and Prusa. There's Troas and Samothrace. And he goes over to Macedonia and he hits Thessalonica and Berea. He comes down, hits Athens. Here's Corinth. This little city here is a port city, Sincre. I can't pronounce it. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then he runs over here and he hits Ephesus and then he returns back and he goes back down to Caesarea and back to Jerusalem. That's a long trip. Even if you were driving a car, huh? How long did that take approximately? I don't know how long that took him. I don't have those numbers. That would be a good question though. But I mean, even if you were driving a Volvo, that's, that's a long way to go. Yeah, that, that, you can drive your Volvo across the Med. I would imagine a couple years. Um, I told you I was going to talk about the Green Line, and I didn't. This Green Line, this is on the first missionary journey. This is John Mark. In Acts 13, he actually leaves and abandons Paul. And he abandons Paul uh, at Perga, and he returns back down to Jerusalem. Uh John Mark is actually the author of the Gospel of Mark. And it's interesting because in 2 Timothy, well, later, Paul refuses to take Mark with him. and says, no, he abandoned me the last time. I'm not taking him with him. And he and Barnabas have this falling out. And so Barnabas took who? He He took Mark. And Peter takes, not Peter, Paul takes Silas. There you go. So Paul and Silas come together. At the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, when Paul's writing and he says, bring these people to me, one of the people he asked for them to bring is Mark. And he says, he's of much benefit to me. So somewhere along the way, he and Mark reconciled. And this is his, well, the green line that I showed you. That's his exit. Okay, so that's the second missionary journey. Here's the third. Now, don't blink, okay? There's the third missionary journey. Looks kind of similar, doesn't it? And it, it confused me because I looked at this map and I said, wait, that's the same map. They just put a different label on it, you know? They just put, where is it? Third missionary journey. So let me clear up the confusion here. The one on the left is the second missionary journey. The one on the right is the third missionary journey. Notice here he goes up north, and here he comes towards the southern southern part of Asia Minor and hits Ephesus first, and then goes up. So that's the second missionary journey. We've already discussed that. 
By the way, there's Barnabas and Mark. They sail down to Cyprus. Third missionary journey, which we'll talk about this a little bit today. Um, again, he starts in Antioch, and he works his way up and around. He gets all the way up to Macedonia, comes down. He hits Corinth, comes down this way, hits Corinth. And then he turns around and goes back up to Macedonia. And then comes back around down to Jerusalem. And what happens in Jerusalem? He gets arrested at the end of his third missionary journey. Okay, and we will talk about this particular, there it is in greater detail so you can actually see it. We'll talk about why he turned around in Corinth and why is that relevant to um, the book of Romans. I'm not showing you these just for fun, but that is relevant to our discussion today. So we're in the book of Romans. The first thing you need to understand is Paul's writing to a church he's never been to. You notice in all three of these, he never goes to Rome. And in fact, if you have your Bibles, go to Romans 1. He's never been to Rome. He's writing to this church he's never been to. Romans 1, verse 10. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I've been trying to get to you. I've been praying to get to you. And I just can't seem to make it. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I've been trying. I've been working really hard to get there and I can't get there. Back in Romans 15, if you want to go back there, we're actually going to camp out in Romans 15 for a few minutes. Romans 15, verse 22. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. What reason is he talking about? Well, the answer to that is back in verse 20. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. His goal is to go to Gentiles that have never heard the gospel before. That is his primary goal. All these other Gentile cities had never heard the gospel before Paul got there. And he is being held up by doing that work. He wants to get to the Romans. He wants to get to Rome. He wants to help them and strengthen them. But his first priority is to get to these Gentiles who have never heard the gospel and to preach the gospel to them. Uh, verse 23, 15-23, But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, now I finish this. I've got churches in all of these cities over here. I've gone by them at least once or twice. They have a church. They have elders. They're ready to stand on their own. Now I feel like I'm getting to the point where I can actually come to you and not feel like I've abandoned my mission as the apostle to the Gentiles. He wants to go where they have not heard the gospel. He also wants to go to places that have not had any apostolic witness. Rome has not had an apostle yet. Uh, Romans 15, 19, 
Would somebody be read, willing to read Romans fifteen nineteen? Why? In the power of signs. I've been all over the world. I've been all over the known world at that point. I've preached the gospel. I've gone with power. I've gone with signs and wonders. And he says, I've even made it to, that's a hard word to pronounce, Illyricum. Where is Illyricum? That's a good question. Illyricum is right here. It's this, this pink region. Here's Macedonia. He's been here. He's been to Athens. Well, not Athens. He's been to Thessalonica, which is over here. Um, he's made it all the way over to this region. Rome's here. He's come a long way, right? He's gotten really close. Here's another slide if I zoom out a little bit. Here's another slide. Jerusalem is down, down here. And he's made it all the way up and around. And he's come all the way down. Um, his missionary journeys did that maneuver, but at some point he went up into this region as well. He says, I've gotten close to you. I'm still trying to get to you, but I have been prevented thus far. I haven't made it there yet. All he had to do was cross the Adriatic and take a little hike, and he would have been to Rome, and he couldn't make it. He wants to go, one, because he wants to get to know these believers, but he has another reason for wanting to go to Rome. Romans 15.24. Um, well, just for context, back up, 15.23. But now with no further place for me in these regions, I've hit all these other places, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Paul wants to go to Spain. It's not just that he wants to get to the Romans. He does. They have a little church there. We'll talk about the church. But his ultimate goal is to go further out and make it out to there. And he sees Rome as a great place to get the material aid and support that he needs to make that journey. He's going to get material aid. He's going to get spiritual support. He's actually going to ask for them to pray for him in a minute. But he's got to make a pit stop first. He's got to stop somewhere else before he can get there because he's not able to get to Rome just yet. He has to go somewhere first. He has to go to Jerusalem. Why would Paul need to go to Jerusalem? By the way, I should tell you, this is on his third missionary journey. And he's writing, we'll, we'll prove this out a little bit, he's writing from Corinth. Corinth is right in here. Why does he need to go from here back to here? Well, he was, he, yeah, I was going to say, he's bringing an offering taken there because there's persecution going on in Jerusalem. Right. He needs to get back to Jerusalem because he's carrying a gift. 
He's carrying gifts for the Jerusalem church and the believers in Jerusalem. What gift is this? Romans 15, verse 25, But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Verse 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Achaia would be this, this region, and Macedonia is above it. That's where he's at. And those saints have made a contribution. They have given him part of the gift. And now he wants to return that to Jerusalem. What gift is this? If you want to learn about the gift, Acts 11. Acts 11.28 describes this gift. Why is he taking money to Jerusalem? Would someone be willing to read Acts 11.28-30? through 30? Yes. And in their proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Agabus prophesies there's going to be a famine. This is going to be very painful. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent out to collect an offering for the church and the saints in Jerusalem. And that's what they were out there doing. He also wants the saints in Corinth to participate in this. 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. He also enlists the church at Corinth to help him. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I direct the churches of Galatia... So do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So he tells the Corinthians, look, every week, first day of the week, that would be Sunday gatherings, by the way, Collect this offering, and when I get there, give me the offering, and I will carry it down to Jerusalem. And he feels like, if we go back to Romans 15, he feels like his efforts have been successful. This offering that he's collecting is working. Uh, Romans 15, 26. Uh, We just read that. Let's do 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so. Speaking of the saints in Macedonia and Achaia. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to in them, excuse me, to them also in material things. What does he mean by that? They're indebted to them. Speaking of being indebted to the saints in Jerusalem, what does he mean by that? I guess he's, was he saying the Jerusalem church kind of sent them the message? begin with, so they, they're kind of indebted because it was them that ministered to them first. Right. The, the gospel message came to these churches from Jerusalem. It was the Jerusalem church that financed and funded missionaries to leave Jerusalem and go out and preach the word. 
It was the Jerusalem church that trained up the missionaries and sent them out. It was from Jerusalem that the gospel went forward. And so all these churches in Asia Minor and Corinth, all of them are dependent spiritually or are recipients of a blessing from Jerusalem. And Paul is saying you have a debt to them. This is only right that they have fed you spiritually, that you provide for them materially when they need it. Once Paul finishes making his delivering this gift to Jerusalem, his plan is to return to Rome, or not return to, go to Rome. Uh, Acts 15, 28, Therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on their this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. As soon as I get done in Jerusalem, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to come to you, and from, from you, I'm going to go out to go to Spain. Paul even mentions this uh, gift when he's in Jerusalem. You remember he goes to Jerusalem, uh, the Jews get upset at him, they grab him, the Romans then arrest him, and he goes and he stands before the governor Felix. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Acts 24, 17. Now after several years, I, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. He's talking about why he's in Jerusalem. He ends his third missionary journey by leaving his journey and going back to Jerusalem to present this offering. That means that Paul didn't finish raising money for the Jerusalem church until the end of his third missionary journey. Now this is important because this is going to help us determine where Paul was when he actually wrote the book of Romans and when he wrote the book of Romans. But Paul has some apprehensions about going to Rome. Paul was really good at uh, making people happy with him. Romans 15, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. The idea of being rescued is talking about physical salvation, being delivered out of somebody's hand. And he wants to be delivered from the people who are disobedient in Judea. And we talked about this earlier, Acts 9, when he's in Damascus. Everybody loved him there. Not really, they tried to kill him. Acts 14, he's in Lystra, and they, they paraded him in the streets with joy when they were trying to stone him to death. They actually stoned him in Lystra, drug him outside the city, and left him for dead. Even in Corinth, Acts 18, he shows up in Corinth, he starts preaching, and the Jews, in all these places, it's the Jews doing this. The Jews, Acts 18, 12, were conspiring to kill him. Macedonia, he goes to Macedonia, and once again, the Jews try to kill him there too. 2 Corinthians 11, 23-25, if you ever think your Christian life is hard, go read Paul's experience. Does everyone know what's in that, in that passage? Yeah, uh, let's just go there. 2 Corinthians 11.
Would somebody be willing to read that? Uh, 23 through 25? Thank you. My Christian life just doesn't sound all that bad these days. <laughs> just, uh, just whatever persecution we're facing right now, just, yeah, I've never been stoned before. And three times he's received the 40 lashes minus one. That's the flogging. And the Jews did 40 minus one because they, they weren't allowed to kill anybody and they thought 40 lashes would kill you, so they only did 39. His back is scarred and marred and looks horrible. So Paul's used to being (laughs) hated by Jews, a Jew himself, and he's used to them trying to kill him. And so when he's thinking about going back to Judea, he understands this might be a problem for me. And later he's going to go and see a, a prophet who's going to tell him, I think this is in Acts 20, you're going to be bound. And remember, he gets out the belt and ties himself up with the belt and says, just like this, you will be bound. So Paul's inclination that he's going to have a problem when he gets to Judea is actually correct. And so he's concerned about it, and he wants them to pray for him. He tells the Romans, would you please pray for me so that when I get there, I won't be delayed in coming to you and eventually going to Spain. Romans 15, verse 32, at the end of it, he says, So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing in your company. He wants to go there. He wants to be refreshed by them. And so he wants to keep living. And if the Jews kill him, he can't do that. Paul's second request is that the Romans um, would pray that his service would be found acceptable to to the believers in Jerusalem. This one was a little hard. That said at the end of verse 31, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Why would the saints not find his service acceptable? I had to think about this one. Any ideas? Think about the context. We're talking about Jerusalem. These are probably converted Jews. Paul is the apostle to who? the Gentiles. Paul is delivering a gift from Gentile churches. Anybody getting it? Huh? Right? They're Jewish Christians. But these are... They might not be so appreciative to get a gift from a bunch of Gentiles. Yeah, old habits die hard. They've been raised on the idea that you're Jewish and those Gentiles are dogs. And now here's Paul bringing us a gift from those dogs. And so Paul says, hey, Romans, would you, would you pray that when I get there, they're actually going to accept this gift and they'll realize that as Christians that they shouldn't view Gentiles in this way? Okay. So I I told you this is all to prove where Paul is and when he's writing. So 
he's writing from Corinth. I'll, I'll just give you the answer up front. How do we know he's writing from Corinth? Well, first, this is at the end of his third missionary journey. Secondly, Romans 16. I have to get back there. Romans 16, verse 23. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Who is Gaius? Gaius was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Gaius was a member of the Corinthian church. He was baptized by Paul. Romans 16, 23 continues, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Cortus, the brother. Erastus is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 20. He is also mentioned as being in Corinth. Both of these men are with Paul right now. And Paul is writing to the Romans saying, these men greet you. He's with men from Corinth. When you bring all this together, it, it appears that Paul wrote to the Romans from the city of Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. And this actually fits with what's described in Acts 20. Turn over to Acts 20 real quick. Have I lost anybody? Everybody tracking with me? I, I forgot to tell you the, the goal of it all at the front, so I'm, I'm hoping I'm made up for it. Acts 20. Yeah. Starting in uh, verse 1, After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to Macedonia. This is while he's in Corinth. There's an uprising. They try to kill him again. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by some of the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Paul's in Corinth. And he decides he's going to leave Corinth. Now, this is at the end of the third missionary journey. Corinth is right here. His goal is to get to Jerusalem. That would get him all the way back here. Why not just leave from here and go straight there? Because you have this uprising. And he needs to get out of the town and going over one city over to the port isn't going to help him much. So he decides, I'm not going to get on a boat. The timing here is also important. He doesn't get on a boat. He turns around and he goes straight back up to Macedonia. Because he wants to avoid the issues in Corinth. And he gets to Macedonia and he spends three months in Macedonia, which is to the north. And then they try to kill him there, too. And he turns around, and he gets on a boat, and he goes to Troas. So let's talk about the timing of this writing. Back to Romans. Romans 16.1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. So one reason he goes north is because of the uprising in Corinth. There is another reason he goes north, and that's what we're going to get to here. Romans 16.1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, was at, which is at Sincrea. Sincrea is this little port city 
well, you can't see it here, but it's right there. It's right next to Corinth. And if he were to get on a boat, he'd go to Sincrea, get on the boat, and go to Rome, or go to Jerusalem. And he says, I commend to you Phoebe. Phoebe's one of the sisters there in Corinth. Paul's been to Sincrea before, Acts 18, 18. It says he stopped there and got a haircut. And he says, I commend to you, Phoebe, verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need for, of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and myself as well. Phoebe is leaving Sincrea. She is going to Rome. She's likely the one who's carrying this letter back to the Romans. This gives us a clue as to when Paul leaves Corinth. He leaves Corinth during a time when travel is not possible by sea. This is probably in February. In the Mediterranean, February at that time was not passable. You don't get on a boat in February in the Med. Navigation from November to early March is all stopped at that time. The boats couldn't handle the weather on the sea. So Paul getting on a boat and trying to make it down to Jerusalem from Corinth would not have worked. He'd have to wait a while. And you say, well, I, I don't think the Mediterranean is all that bad. I don't think the weather there is all that bad. Um, I spent a little time on the Med. I, I have a little picture for you. This, this picture is from the early 2000s, so it's kind of grainy. Okay, just for a little context, okay? Just a little context, okay? Um, do you see this little square thing right here? I don't know if you, in the back, I don't know if you can see that. That little square thing stands about that tall. There are two 50 cal gun mounts somewhere in that wave that you can't see. Those gun mounts were welded to the deck with a weld that was that long and it was solid steel. Those welds, those gun mounts were ripped off their welds and twisted. You've seen a 50 cal gun mount. You don't twist those things easily. Those mounts came from there, and they ended up all the way back down on the forward end of the superstructure. We had waves breaking over the top of the bridge wings. Bridge wings sat about 100 feet off the water. It was probably one of the worst storms I've ever been in. That's the Med. About the same time Paul would have been writing from Corinth. January, February time frame. That's why he doesn't want to get on a boat and go to Rome or go to Jerusalem. So instead of doing that, he turns around and he goes north. He goes north to Macedonia. In Acts 20, we don't need to go there, but we find some more details that might help us pinpoint this. Acts 20, verses 4 and 5, Paul's friends leave and they go to Troas. They leave Macedonia. They go to Troas ahead of them. Paul then leaves from Philippi. Acts 20, verse 6, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. Uprising happens in Corinth. He can't get on the boat. He goes north to Macedonia. He's in Philippi until the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's about the time of Easter, about the time of the Resurrection Week. He goes there, stays there, and then gets on a boat and sails to Troas to meet up with his friends in Troas. 
bring all this together. Paul's on his third missionary journey. He gets to Corinth at the end of that journey. And he wants to go to Jerusalem directly from Corinth. He can't. He can't, one, because there's an uprising. Two, the weather doesn't permit it. So he goes north to Macedonia. His friends go ahead of him to Troas. Phoebe eventually gets on a boat. She goes to Rome with the letter that you're currently looking at. And Paul stays in Macedonia three months and returns and goes back to Troas. And then he follows that line and he comes back down this way and makes it back down to Jerusalem. So who is Paul writing to? That's the right answer. The Romans. Okay. Um, yeah, he's, he's writing to people in the city of Rome. But if you notice in the book of Romans, he never says to the church of Rome. He talks about the church of Ephesus. But if you look in Romans 1 or even in Romans 16, he never mentions the church of Rome. Uh, Romans 1, verse 7, he says to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mention the church. He doesn't mention an individual body. He's writing to individual believers. But that wouldn't be true of the entire city, would it? The whole city is not a bunch of believers. He's writing to specific individuals in that city who are believers. Let me give you some information on the city of Rome. At the time of his writing, Rome was the largest and most important city in the world. There was a saying that all roads lead to Rome. It was the center of power and influence. And this letter was written in the early years of Nero. By the time Paul gets to Corinth, you're talking 57 to 58 AD is when he wrote. That would be in the early years of Nero's reign. And you might think, well, Nero was a sadistic killer, so... That doesn't sound like a good time in the kingdom. Actually, his first couple of years in power were decent. Anybody, any history buffs in here who know why the first couple of years of Nero's power were actually decent? They were decent because Nero was still a young emperor, and he had a couple of advisors who were actually sane. One of them was a guy named Seneca. And during Seneca's life, before Nero murdered him, um, he gave wisdom to Nero, and Nero was a decent emperor. And the first few years of his reign weren't all that bad. And the government ran pretty well. There was some corruption in the city of Rome, but for the most part, the city services worked, the city was in good condition, and things went along as normal. And the city was a thriving metropolis, and it would rival cities today. Early estimates of the city's population range from 1 to 2 million people. More recent estimates put that number as high as 4.1 million people. San Antonio is just, over, just under 2 million right now? If those recent estimates are correct, you're talking about a city two times larger than San Antonio. This is a massive city. Most of the people in that city were poor. There were a few wealthy individuals who lived in Rome. Uh, the poor didn't really have much of an interest in working because they could receive public or private charity. Uh, essentially, they can get free food. And they were very proud of their Roman citizenship, but they weren't so proud of manual labor. And so as long as they could get food and they can go watch the games, 
they were satisfied. And so a lot of the poor just remained poor. Out of that city, Philip Schaff estimates there were somewhere between 20 to 30,000 Jews. Monotheism was rising in Rome. There was a lot of polytheistic religion in the world at that time, but it was very amoral or immoral. And people were being attracted to the idea of an ethical monotheism. This idea there's only one God and you're supposed to live a certain way. And so Judaism was becoming very popular. And the early emperors, including Nero, at first started off being very welcoming to the Jews. They were peaceful for the most part. They didn't cause a lot of problems and they would pay their taxes. So the emperors were like, okay, fine, be here. And the people seemed to like the religion. That is until some Jews from Jerusalem, from Judea, came to Rome and they had a complaint with the governor in Judea. And they started collecting other Jews who also didn't like the governor and they started this little uprising in the city of Rome. Anybody know what happened after that? It wasn't the fire, that was, I know where you're going though, but that's good. Um, Claudius, the emperor Claudius, kicked all the Jews out of Rome and said, get out of here. That's in Acts 18.2. You can actually see where Jews had come, I think Priscilla and Aquila were Jews in Rome and they were kicked out under Claudius. By the time Nero comes back, the Jews have regained some favor. The Romans don't have any problem with the Jews and now Jews are once again flocking to the city of Rome. It was also a diverse city. It had Jews, but it also had a whole bunch of Gentiles. And that means Paul's recipients would have been Jews and Gentiles because the Jews made prime candidates for, for new converts to Christianity. They already embraced the idea of monotheism and the Christian religion is founded in large part on the Old Testament, their law. It works. So Paul is writing to both Jews and the Gentiles. And it seems obvious from his book that he's writing to Gentiles. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul, bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles. And throughout his book, you'll see this continually going back to Gentiles and pointing to the fact that he is the apostle sent to Gentiles. And that's why he is writing to the Jews. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, we read this earlier, that I have often planned to come to you so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's writing to the Romans and he's saying there's a whole bunch of Gentiles among you and I'm the apostle who is called to minister to you. So I'm going to write to you. Romans 11, he mentions the Gentiles, verses 13 and 14. He actually calls them Gentiles. Romans 11, 13, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So he actually writes to them and says, Among you I am writing to those of you who are Gentiles. And he sees his letter as being necessary for his ministry to the Gentiles. This is how he's going to minister to the Gentiles who are in Rome. Romans 15, starting in verse 15, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given from me, 
uh, from to me from God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the church of Rome, the, the believers in Rome, include a large part, a, a large portion of Gentiles. But he's also writing to Jews. We've already said that the, the city of Rome was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. We see evidence of Jews being in this local body. Uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. In chapter 2, he's trying to explain to them the depravity of man. and He's telling the Jews, look, you have no excuse for your sinful behavior. You know the law, and yet you're behaving this way. Later in chapter 4, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Abraham, our forefather? If his recipients are only Gentiles, that would have no meaning to them. That would only be meaningful if his recipients included some Jews. Even Paul's argument in Romans 6 assumes that they have an understanding of the law, that they have an understanding of Jewish law. Romans 6, 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If he's writing to just Gentiles, they have no idea what law he's referring to. According to Romans 3, 1 and 2, the law was found in the oracles of God and it was given to the Jews. And that's his argument. There is a benefit to being Jewish. You've been given the oracles of God. You've been given the law. And Paul even distinguishes between his Jewish and his Gentile audience. Romans 7, 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law. That would be the Jews. And he viewed his readers not as people who needed to hear the gospel for the first time. He viewed them as being believers. He's writing to people he thought were truly believers. We've already seen Romans 1 verse 5 where he calls them saints. Romans 1 verse 13, he refers to them as brethren. Romans 15 15, he says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me, I'm writing to you to remind you again, to tell you what you already know as a reminder. He viewed them as Christians, and he viewed them as strong ones. These were not babes in the faith. These were not people who didn't know anything. He viewed them as being mature. He says in Romans 1.8, Pastor actually preached on this a few weeks ago, that their faith was being proclaimed throughout the world. Romans 16, verse 19, their obedience has reached the entire world, is being, is being spoken of by others and being rejoiced over. He says, I'm not writing to you to establish your faith. This is Romans 1, 11 and 12. I'm not writing to give you faith or so that you could come to faith. I'm writing to you to strengthen the faith that you already have. Romans 1, 11, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that you may be strengthened, that is, that I, may be that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, 
each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He sees them as believers. He tells them they're filled with wisdom. They're able to admonish one another. Anybody know what that word is for admonish? Nuthateo. Nuthateo is the word that we get our, the idea of biblical counseling. It's a one believer admonishing, encouraging, teaching, strengthening, building up another believer and teaching them how to walk. Romans 15, 14, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another, to counsel one another. You have enough wisdom, you are mature enough that you can teach and lead other believers. He has high praise for this church. It's not that the church was perfect. You know what they say, if you find a perfect church, you know what you should do? Don't join it, you'll ruin it. This is not a perfect church. He knows that. He knows the church has needs. He talks to them about their weakness of their flesh in Romans 6.19. And he encourages them in their sanctification. But he's talking to them not in the same way as, you remember in 1 Corinthians 5 when he writes to the Corinthians? And he talks to them about the man who has his father's wife. And he says, put that man out. It's not that kind of admonishment. It's the kind of admonishment of one person or a pastor going to you and saying, hey, there's sin in your life, you need to deal with that. And that's what he says to them. All of you have some sin in your lives. You guys need to deal with your sin. You need to be growing in your holiness. You need to be growing in sanctification. And nowhere in Romans do we find any correction to false doctrine. You find that in the Corinthian church. You find that in the Galatian letter. But you don't find any correction to false doctrine here. He also doesn't tell them about their church polity and tell them that their church leadership is bad. He doesn't correct the elders of the church or the leaders of the church. There's very little correction given. But they did have people who were causing dissension. They did have factions. If you look at Romans 16, 17, uh, Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Not a perfect church, but certainly not in the same category that you would find other churches. So Paul's writing to believers. The believers are gathering as a church. Otherwise, he wouldn't write in a single letter to the saints. So when did this church start? Paul didn't start it. It was already there when he wrote to them from Corinth. When did the Church of Rome begin? Well, there's one very well-known theory on this. Roman Catholic Church has a theory on this. They say Peter started this church. That Peter established the Church of Rome in 42 AD and then remained there until his death when he was martyred. And he reigned as Pope from Rome. Um, problem. If Peter went to Rome in 42 AD and stayed there until his death, how in the world did he show up at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which happened in 49 AD? 
And when you read the book of Acts, it makes it seem as though Peter's been in Jerusalem the whole time. It doesn't say Peter came in from Rome. And it makes no mention of Peter the Pope arriving. Which you would think, you know, the Pope is here. And the final judgment of that uh, council was given not by Peter, but by James. So Peter isn't even in Rome. The other problem is, if you look at Romans 16, we're not going to read it, but if you look at Romans 16, notice starting around verse 6. Greet Mary. Greet Andronicus. Greet Amphilitus. Greet Urbanus. And it just goes on and on and on and on. You know who's missing? Peter. He's writing to the church of Rome. The Pope is in Rome. Peter, the apostle, is in Rome. And Paul doesn't even say hi to him. He includes people from every class and every walk of life, from free men to slave. People who have official positions in the church and people who don't. And yet he leaves Peter out. It's hard to see any historical evidence that would support the idea that Peter established the church in Rome. And even in our letter here to the Romans, Paul says things that would make you think there's no way Peter established this church. Romans 15, verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. If Peter established the church in Rome and preached the gospel and built the church there, Paul going to Rome would be building on another man's foundation. The other problem is Peter was not the apostle to the Gentiles, was he? He was the apostle to the... What in the world is he doing in Rome? There's no historical evidence that Peter established his church. I've got two minutes. Okay. The other idea is that these are believers who come from Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 10 Romans are named among the people who are speaking in tongues. They receive the Holy Spirit. The, the idea is that these people are down visiting in Jerusalem, and then they return back to Rome. They're now believers, and I'm just thinking, what a great vacation. You picked a great time to go to Jerusalem. But they go down there, they, they experience that, they go back, they build a church. I don't think that really works. How does Paul know them? In Romans 16, how does he name all these people? These are people Paul knows that are in Rome. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I'm not dogmatic. but The last view is that these are people who migrated to Rome from the Eastern churches that Paul had established. Both Jews and Gentiles who left their homes and they went to Rome because people flocked to the big cities. And that would explain how Paul knew all of these people, and was able to write to them by name. You can take either one of those last two views. We can't either. We can't prove either one. All right. Questions, comments. Um, do you think, um, They could have been. They the, they were actually the ones that were that left. They left Rome because they were kicked out. Um, but they could have been returned. Yeah. Well, part of the reason that uh, there's not, you know, when he uh, starts writing this, he doesn't 
uh, bring up a church would could that be part of you know kind of like in China right now you don't there's there's not a church per se but there's believers there could be because of persecution that there's not that they don't have a actual church yeah the persecution at this point hasn't started the persecution right now is still coming from the Jews my guess on that would be the reason he's writing it this way is because none of these people are meeting in the same churches. They're not meeting together in one building, but they know each other. And so they're having a whole bunch of house churches around the city. And you've got a city of, at, at best, four million people. They're still in the organizing phase and they don't have a one single location to meet at. There's an interesting comment when the persecution does start. Philip Schaff had said that by this time there's 30 to 40,000 Jews there. When the persecution does start, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus says of the Christians, there's, what was the phrase he used? An innumerable multitude or something like that. There's a bunch of Christians in Rome. And so I would imagine this was towards the beginning part of them establishing the church and they haven't come together yet. But, yeah. All right, anything else? All right, let me pray real quick and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for the life of Paul and uh, the work that he has done, that you did through him. Um, we are beneficiaries. Uh, just as the Gentiles of that day were beneficiaries of Jerusalem, we are beneficiaries of Paul's ministry. And uh, we are so thankful for that. And we're so thankful for the word. And we just ask that you'd help us to live by it better and better each day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.